Um, my name is Tony Bernhardt, and uh, I am a friend and student of Sylvia's. And I show up here every once in a while. Is there anyone here who's here for the first time at Spirit Rock? Never been to Spirit Rock before? Anyone who's first time to this class? Welcome. You're, and you're from? Ah, nearby. <laughs> I thought I would talk this morning about, um, I guess the formal, the formal way to identify would be right view, uh, the first of the first of the elements on the eightfold path, uh, because right view really, in a in a in a profound way, is the whole ballgame. Uh, if we see things as they are, we understand things as they are. If we truly do, without wishing that they weren't. Um, now the, the end of suffering would appear. But it's not always easy to understand what we're talking about with right view. It's, it's, it's the first of the elements of the Eightfold Path, and often we practice the Onefold Path, which is right mindfulness. We practice our sitting and forget about the rest. So I want to talk a little bit about right view and just exactly what we mean by that and how it affects our relationship to the dissatisfaction that hovers around our lives. Years and years ago, when I was being taught about the Great Depression, and this applies more recently as well. I, I, there was a huge puzzlement that occurred to me, and it, it's lasted, it lasted for a long, long time. So on one day, they had all the, you know, the carpenters were there, and they had their hammers and their saws, and the lumber was there, and the plans were there, and, and they would go out and they'd build their house. And then the stock market crash, Everything changes. The next day, you still got the, the same carpenters. You got the same hammers and saws, and the lumber is st sitting there, but nobody's building the houses. And what happened? And the, the, the professor who was explaining was talking about money being this abstraction. But he said, you know, it's so are so are inches, you know, units of. So we'd be like showing up at work, and they say we can't work on the house today because we've run out of inches. <laughs> you know. But something happened. You know, it wasn't just. You know, it may have been an ab. You know, money being an abstraction, and um, but what there was a huge shift in understanding about the world, about the nature of what was going on. And the view, the word view, in this, in this context, encompasses all of that. It encompasses everything we understand about the world, all the thoughts. You know, here we are sitting in this room. We are sitting in the room, listening to the Dharma, 
relatively comfortable physically. This is not, it's not noisy, disruptive. We're here. And yet, in our minds, our minds can be almost anywhere. And we have ideas about the way things are, about the universe, you know, how old it is, how far it goes. Maybe we know less or more. Anybody factor in dark matter? When you think about the universe, we don't even have a clue what it is. We know it's there and there's a lot of it. I guess we know. We've heard, I've heard, that it's somewhere. I don't even know where. I don't know what it is. Nobody does. Um, so our, our ideas, what's floating around in our mind, you know, is not, you know, it's not necessarily the physical sensations that are associated with our, where our body is. Our mind and our body are not particularly in the same place. Um, and when things shift, you know, when, the, when, when the view of the world that we all share, you know, both in, you know, in, in 1929 and, and more recently, when things change, um, all of a sudden our behavior changes. Not just individually, collectively we can see it. You know, it's not like people lost their skills. It's not like everybody forgot how to do whatever it was they were doing. It's just that the very sophisticated view, understanding, often uh, samaditi, which is the, the Pali words that describe this first element, often uh, they're described as right understanding or skillful understanding. It's the understanding that leads to the end of suffering. That's really what we're talking about. It's not particularly about what's correct and incorrect, true and false. We'll talk about true and false in a little bit. But our view of how things are, and then of course, our view of how things ought to be, who we are, personality view, who we think we are. You know that, that, uh, that New Yorker cartoon, in, in, uh, in memory of Sylvia today, I'm going to, I have to recount it, it was a New Yorker cartoon, the, the drunk who comes into the bar and says, do you have any idea who I think I am? <laughs> no. We have ideas about who, who we are. A personality view. It's it's one of it's one of the the uh, uh, one of the fetters, one of the things that constrain us. Personality view. It's one of the forms of clinging to our ideas of who we think we are. These these whole uh, realms of ideas that are can be very complex, and that we cling to. We think they're true. Um, my gosh, what do we fight over mostly? Is our ideas about how we think things are and how we think things ought to be. You know, I, I remember <laughs> just innocently going up to the cash register and uh, at a supermarket, and the the woman, young woman behind the cash register, said, 
how are you doing? Well, I, for, I spent quite a while not liking that question and resenting it and because they didn't really mean it. It was this formal thing. It got on my nerves. And so I spent a lot of time trying to come up with a, with a, a good response. Sylvia's suggestion, she said, I couldn't be better. Because if I could, I would. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty good. But I tried all kinds of things. And uh, on that day, I said, oh, I think things are looking up. I thought I'd try that one. And she said, oh, that's, that's great, because you're not one of these end-of-the-world types. I said, no, no, no. She said, good, because I'm getting married, and I'd hate to think the world is about to come to the end. I said, well, you know, the universe has been around about 18 billion years. We've probably got a few more. Oh, no, she said, I don't think it's been 18 billion. Well, I didn't get it. Uh, I said, oh, are you in the 13 billion? Because, <laughs> you know, there's... <laughs> yeah, no. She said, no, it's been around for about 7,000. And uh, because she explained to me that uh, all that radiocarbon dating stuff isn't as accurate as they think. Well, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I didn't do so well. <laughs> At that moment, I said, no, what about astronomical measurements? And we were off to the, we were off to the races. <laughs> views, you know, views, ideas of, of how things are. And our ideas of how things are generate our judgments. Almost all, all any judgment that you find yourself uh, attached to comes from a view about, an idea about how things should be. They should be X. Uh-oh, they're not. Well, and all of our judgments are around that. And judgments are, <coughs> if you've noticed, they're a particularly common visitor uh, in, our, in our minds. And, and each one of them, you can, you can track back to a particular idea, a thought about how things should be. Our ideas of the world, who we are, what's going on, what, how, what are our standards for true and false. And then we, we attach to them. We have our story of, well, the history of America. We've got a story about that. All of these stories. We've got the Al-Qaeda story. Anybody not have an Al-Qaeda story? We're probably different among all of us, but we've all got a little bit of that. We've got the Gulf oil story. You know, who's responsible? What's going on? And you know, all of these stories come with a feeling. There's a feeling that's related to all of them. And you can check in and think about what you think is going on with the oil spill. Anybody not have a feeling about that? And, and those feelings are all physical. They all occur in the body. And we've got this story, which is a view, uh, an understanding. And we have these feelings about them, and then, and then we react to the, to the view and the feeling, and, and we get what's called papancha, mental proliferation. It just, you know, we, 
go from one thought to the next, getting reactive to that. You know, who's going to get BP to pay and the poor birds and how can we live with this? It's going to be forever. And, you know, you can go on and on and on. Um, and these, these views are based, uh, they, they come out of our hard wiring. So, you know, the Buddha described <clears throat> five elements, five uh, experience streams that, that, that make us up. There's the, the, the physical stuff. The, the five senses, the colors and the sounds and the, the feelings and the smells and the tastes. And then there are four elements that are, that are mental. There's um, the feeling tone, pleasant or unpleasant. Vedna, and these somewhere along that continuum between really pleasant and really agonizing, we find ourselves occasionally neither pleasant nor unpleasant, but it's but that pleasant unpleasant quality is present every minute. It's part of our hard wiring, and and we have a preference for the pleasant, or I do. <laughs> Probably not just me. Then there's then there is the um, the sanya, which is the is translated as perception. It's the labeling process. It's the mind, which. Um, identifies where it is, that identifies what's going on. It labels things. Um, and, and you can actually watch it happen. Have you ever been in a situation where there's a sort of a roar or something in the background that's growing and you're, you can watch your mind. What is that? Is that a plane, a train, a truck? Is it an earthquake? You know, and then finally you focus, oh, it's a helicopter. And then you go back to whatever you were doing. But your mind wants to identify, to place itself. The Buddha says this is hardwired. And, and the other two elements, are the volitional elements, the, the intentional um, uh, expressions of wills, the fourth, and the last is consciousness, which comes with each of the sense, the sense doors. So there's consciousness, all these colors, eye consciousness, ear consciousness. And the mind consciousness, which includes the pleasant, unpleasant, it includes the labeling and the, the volitional things. But the, the, the labeling becomes views, they become views. Um, I remember being on retreat once and standing at the back of the room, there's a, you know, just bef- between the, the, the Dharma talk and the sitting just before it, there's a short break. So I would go stand in the back of the room and some people would go in and out and get a drink or whatever, stretch. And, and I was standing in the back of the room and somebody walked by me. And I, as I looked at his face, it looked really, well, my mind said, he looks pretty grim. Just went, just a perception, just... The mind just labeled, it looks pretty grim. The next day when I saw him walking around, my mind went, there's the grim guy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the perception becomes a view. 
that we then use to label and 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 uh, overlays the overlays our our And, and we cling to those views. We hold on to them. What is clinging when it relates, when it comes to view? It has to do with, it has to do with believing. We believe our views. Our ideas about how things are. We think reasonably <coughs> how things are. Even though our view of the way things are may be really different from person next to us or my gosh you can you know you can <laughs> cute still has its spots so so skillful view or unskillful view um, you know you'd think Understanding the Dharma the way the Buddha taught, uh, for example, um, anicca, dukkha, and anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self, which is which is tricky. But you can have the you can say, okay, I've got that. I got that view. Impermanence, not self. And I have, I have sat in a Dharma group and watched this conversation. You don't have a self. I do have a self. Oh, no, you don't have a self. Buddha says, you don't. I do too have a self. I know I have a self. I can feel it. No, you don't have a self. Buddha says, I've watched that conversation. So whatever, it's not just whether the view is true. It's how you hold, it's, it's partly how you're holding the view as well. And it's not, you know, it's not so much the idea that you're supposed to give up views, but cherishing them. The, one of the Zen patriarchs said, um, don't go searching for the truth. Just cease to cherish your opinions. Because when we cherish our opinions, those become the elements that divide us and over which we'll get into dispute. Anybody ever get into an argument about a difference of opinion? <laughs> the Buddha was sitting in the in the forest once. This is in the Honeyball Sutta, and Dandapani, who I guess was a was a a cousin, and not a fan. I'm I'm not sure the Buddha's extended family was all that functional. Um, <laughs> Well, Devadatta was his cousin, tried to kill him. Um, you know, pushed a boulder down a hill, tried to crush him, I guess. Does that count as dysfunctional? <laughs> you know. Um, Adonapani came upon him in the, in the forest and he said, Ah, oh, what does the Holy One proclaim? And the Buddha said, I proclaim a doctrine that does not dispute with anyone. How do you get there? You know, a doctrine that does not dispute with anyone. A view that is not, that doesn't, um, you know, we, we, 
we think that right view might be about true and false, but it's really not. Because the, because the Eightfold Path is about the path to putting an end to, or at least attenuating, the dissatisfaction, the suffering, the dukkha that we live with. And so right view is about an understanding that will attenuate that suffering, that will attenuate the, the uh, discontent, the disappointment that we, that we, that we get. Right view would be uh, different from ignorance, presumably, be sort of the opposite. And ignorance, you know, for the Buddha, this is not this hazy state of mind where we just don't know something. It's it's an active. In fact, for a lot of these for a lot of these uh, concepts, we translate them as nouns. But really, they're more like verbs. So right view is actually right viewing. It's the way we look at things. You know, we're not going to get rid of stories in our mind because we're hardwired to label things, to identify where we are. And story is part of that process, telling us what's going on, what's happening. You know. But it's the activity, the way, the viewing. It's not, a, it's not there's a right view as in a right tableau. This picture is right and all others are wrong. There's a, I wonder if I've still got this in my, this is something that, that usually lives in my, my, uh, my book here because um, uh, I, re- I just like to remind myself of it, and I, I just did. Because <laughs> a view is true or false, this is this, a bit of commentary on a, on a verse from the Sutta Napada. A view is true or false only when one is judging how accurately it refers to something else. If one is regarding it simply as a statement, as an event, in and of itself, true or false no longer applies. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Thus, for the Tathagata, which is the word that the Buddha used to refer to himself, the thus gone, Thus, for the Tathagata, who no longer imposes notions of subject or object on experience and regards sights, sounds, feelings, and thoughts purely in and of themselves, views are neither true nor false, but simply, simply phenomena to be experienced. So can we regard our views just as views? With no notion of subject, there is no grounds for I know or I see. With no notion of object, no grounds for this is how it is, that's how it is. Views of true, false, self, no self, thus lose all their holding power and the mind is left free to its suchness, just the way it is. It's just the way it is. Untouched, uninfluenced by anything of any sort. 
and the verse from the Suttanapada that this is a commentary. I don't even know whose commentary this is because I copied it and didn't note that down. That, say the wise, is a fetter in dependence on which one sees others as inferior. It's an idea. You should be this way, you shouldn't be that way. I have a good friend, someone I've known for, oh my gosh, 45 years. And she's very unhappy because her kids are, you know, her son is her 40s and a musician, but unable to really be successful. And she wishes he was something else. Sad to wish things were different in that way. Not that things shouldn't be different. Shunru Suzuki said, I love you just the way you are, but I love you too much to leave you the way you are. (laughs) It doesn't mean that you have to resign yourself, but at least to acknowledge things the way things are. And we usually, we project out on our dissatisfaction out on the world. We think, tell me, you know, this is, just try this on sort of for size. I'm more or less okay. More or less. You know, do want, you know, the world is a mess. <laughs> it's the world that's a mess. But the world is the way it is. It's neither a mess nor not a mess. But we project our own dissatisfaction onto it. And then we suffer <laughs> with, with the way we, we think it is. So right viewing, just it's the seeing. In the seeing, only the seeing. In the hearing, just the hearing. You know, in the touching, in the tasting, the smelling. And in the thinking, just the thinking. It's just thinking. Ignorance is something we do. It's not a, you know, it's not this hazy cloud we stick our head in and we don't, we don't see clearly. It's, it's uh, uh, John Peacock, who's a, a, a poly scholar, says it's lusting after the way things aren't. <laughs> we, we, we want things to be satisfying. We're, we think we're going to make ourselves happy by chasing after what we want. That's, you know, uh, isn't, isn't that sort of how we spend our time? You know, trying to make things pleasant, trying to get what we want. And as Dr. Phil might say, how's that working for you? <laughs> Uh, Albert Einstein said, uh, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. (laughs) I'm not questioning our mental health here, but... So, the view that that would help us attenuate the dissatisfaction that we live with, what would that be? Buddha's pretty clear. 
it's, it's uh, anicca, seeing things anicca, the impermanence of all things, dukkha, the unsatisfactory, the inability of anything to provide satisfaction, and anatta, which is, I'll talk a little bit about that in a, in a minute. I mean, it's tr- translated often as not-self, and everybody goes. I remember Sylvia said the first time she heard impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, she said, well, two out of three is not bad, but I know I'm here. <laughs> you know, well, if I do have a self. The, 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 the ennobling truth of 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 the of unsatisfactoriness is it it's one insight that's spread over four over the four noble truths so when you see and understand the nature of dissatisfaction completely you also will see what's causing it if you don't you know if if, if you see it clearly you'll understand it what's causing it and the end of it, and the path to the end of it. You'll see it as, just as it is. But our own stubbornness, just speaking personally here, to keep trying to make you know, my program work out um, keeps us from seeing that. You know, we think, I watched, uh, anybody watch the French Open and, and uh, uh, Francesca Schiavone won the Italian woman. Oh my gosh! First Italian woman to win a, a major tennis champion ever, and she was just oh, it, it was just beautiful to watch. These last few games, she was, you know, people get nervous at the end and they find this unable to close out the game, and she was not. She was just. She just was like a horse seeing the barn. It was she just charged and and uh, Stoser had no chance. And she was just in heaven. She you know kissed the ground and did all the brown. It's clay, you know, and it's dusty clay. And she was just and just her face was totally open. It was just beautiful. She was having a great time. And I thought this will last her for a while, you know. Maybe a couple days. <laughs> oh, and then she gets to go home, and then, you know, she's all over the newspaper, so it'll be just great for her at home. But, you know, even that doesn't hang in there. I mean, she's 30. She wouldn't have another chance. Late in her career, you know, even, even that, impermanent. Even that is impermanent. And we still try to set things up so that so even that, not entirely satisfying, wonderful, beautiful, but comes and goes, like the weather. And not to see that, then how can we, how can we not be dissatisfied with the way things are, even the highest moment in our life? Everything and to see that deeply, how our own wishing for it to be different sets us up for that, 
that disappointment. You know, and that incredibly sophisticated view of the world that led to the boom of the 20s and the bubble of the past 10 years, you know, when it doesn't match the way things are, we all suffer. When our view, when we cling to a view of the way things are or should be, you know, really unskillful view is the heart of all of our suffering. Right view, skillful view is the whole ballgame. So and so, you know, Byron Katie is really good at at addressing um, the, the the ideas we cling to about how things should be. And if you're not familiar with her, she she uh, um, has a number of books, uh, and she also she had a an awakening insight that was very profound, and. Unusually, I mean, there are a lot of people who wake up, <clears throat> but very few who come up with a little practice to help other people pry themselves free. The Buddha, you know, and the Buddha taught for 45 years, and his practice is very, very deep. Byron Katie just asks whether, what, whatever you think things should be, is that absolutely true? And how would you feel, how would you be, if you didn't think that thought? It's the thinking the thought. We have the, the thought, the story, and our reaction to it. And then we react to our reaction. And then we react to our reacting to the reaction. Papancha, it goes on and on and on. And dissatisfaction comes with it. And, and you know, we're, we look for meaning. In life, isn't that part of the search for meaning? <laughs> Something to cling to. <laughs> you know, um, which will, of course, let us down. Dissatisfaction, because it's all changing. the 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 Anicca part of this the nature of the way things are. The, everything is in constant change. So even the most pleasant moment is going away, and the unpleasant is coming. We don't mind when the unpleasant is going away. We sort of, we say, oh, good, the headache's going. Now I can move on to what I, you know, what I really want to do. Or the, the person rustling papers in the back of the meditation hall. Oh, good, now I can go back to that La La Land, where I, <laughs> the, uh, you know. so when the unpleasant's disappearing, we don't necessarily uh, complain. We like the pleasant. We don't like the unpleasant. And because everything, everything is, everything is changing. Nothing stays the same. It's a delusion of our language. That things, that there is any permanence. So, for example, if I ask you to think <coughs> of an equilateral triangle, is that the same equilateral triangle you thought of the last time? 
And we've got this platonic thing going about the realm of forms. There are some things that are real, that, that are real, and they're permanent. You sort of have that feeling? No. And all this changing stuff, not so, not so permanent. Um, but each time we think of an equilateral triangle, we conjure a new one. We make a new one. Think of a red one or a blue one. Isn't that fun? <laughs> Yellow one? We can, you know. um, each, one is, each one is different. Because we use nouns, we think there are things. Because a noun is a thing. And we think each time we recall the noun, that we're recalling the same thing. But we're conjuring it again anew each time. And it comes to ourselves. We think ourself is permanent. There is something here that's substantial. Because each time I think of myself, well, I think self. You know, we use our name. You know, me, isn't that, that's not a noun, is it? What is it? It's a pronoun? Yeah. Well, pronouns. <laughs> yeah. But we think of them as things. And, and there's, you know, there's delusion there because um, it's just, you know, each, each time we think of a noun, it's, um, we think it's the same thing that we're thinking about the same, but each moment is different. Each moment is new. The thought arises and passes. So our view, our thought, is impermanent as well. Any view, impermanent. Unsatisfactory. And not self. What does that mean? That's really, that's the really crazy one. Anybody here really comfortable with this not self business? Well, let me take a run at it, maybe. The idea is, is actually not that complicated. And the Dalai Lama was teaching in, uh, uh, at Radio City Music Hall a week or two ago. And I just had images of him in the Rockettes. <laughs> it's just great. And the title of his, the title of his presentation was... Emptiness and compassion. And usually it's wisdom and compassion. And it's the way, the two wings of the Dharma, wisdom and compassion. And so he's putting emptiness there in place of wisdom, the insight into emptiness. What does that mean? My understanding is that is the map is not the territory. The nouns are nouns. They come and go in our mind. They aren't permanent. But they don't describe experience. Everything interpenetrates everything else. There are no things anywhere. There's only process. Emptiness refers to a concept. <clears throat> the concept is empty of 
independent reality. Is this body an entity? It's a process. It's different. I love that Ajahn Amaro, who's been a monk for, what, 30 years? He likes to say, this is a 100% donated body. This <laughs> is all the food that, you know, has been donated. So this body is 100% donated. There's nothing. Everything interpenetrates everything else. Everything is conditioned by something else. There is nothing that exists separate in and of itself. Because if it did, how would we even know it? All of our sense, sensory data is totally transitory. Right? You, you know, we, if you ever encountered something that was permanent, you wouldn't know. But the Buddha says, don't worry about it. Everything that exists is, exists because of conditions and causes. It's not separate. It's not an entity. There isn't an entity anywhere. Now, the, the, the Buddha got, used the word anatta. Um, at the time, the Brahmanical religion at the time was, um, and it's still around today in the Advaita teachings, and, and you'll, you'll pick up some of it actually in Dharma circles as well. The idea that there, the Brahman, the spirit that infuses the entire universe, the unity of all things, the oneness that, that uh, is the entire universe, and the Atman, the spark of that in each of us, that divine bit, the Atman and Brahman are the same. That was the Brahmanical teaching. And the, and the purpose of all the practice that the Brahmins would do, uh, and the Brahmanical religious tradition, we call it Hinduism now, the idea is to realize the unity of the self and the Brahman, Atman and Brahman. The Buddha said, Anatta, no Atman. There's nothing separate here. There's nothing permanent here. It is, Anatta is the flip side of Anicca, of impermanence. There's no thing anywhere, certainly not ourselves. We have trouble with that because we think, well, yeah, I'm here. There, it, he, Buddha was not saying there's, there's not something here. There's experience here. We're all having it. We're in the midst of it. But when we start to think about it, seeing things as they are, this constantly changing process is one thing. As soon as we start to formulate the insight into that, into language, well, language is full of nouns and verbs and objects and it can't help but be distorted. And then, of course, we take the formulation as the truth, cling to it, and beat up somebody over, you don't have a self, I do have a self. <laughs> Nibbana, not a noun. Nibbana is an intransitive verb. 
It's something we do or something we can do. Samsara, the delusional state of constantly becoming, constantly searching. I guess heedless wandering, also a verb. So we can nibbana or we can samsara. It's much closer if you, if you see it as a verb than if you see it as a noun, as something that's out there that always, and you know, it's, it's always present or it's unconditioned, the, un, the unconditioned of you, a noun. My understanding is the, the, uh, when referring to Nibbana as the unconditioned means unconditioned by greed and aversion and delusion. It's experience that is free from the constraints of, of wanting and not wanting and the delusion that will make ourselves happy. Things that some, something is permanent somewhere. Seeing things as they aren't. Striving after things as they aren't. Well, if you're striving after things as they aren't, guess what? <laughs> You'll get what you don't, don't want. No way around that. You know? And usually delusion is talked about in terms of, oh, I saw the rope in the road and I thought it was a snake. Isn't that the story we get? You know, the rope. But, you, but often it's, I, I, I thought there was something there. <laughs> Self. You say, well, I'm just like that. That's the way I'm an entity with these characteristics. Actually, there's just the stream of behavior and it's repetitive, habitual. These characteristics of an entity are really just habitual patterns that recur and can be changed at any time. So at any moment, it's possible to see things as they are and be free. Freedom comes from seeing things as they are and not without the wish that they were different. That doesn't mean that we don't, like Shonro Suzuki, we don't say, I love you just the way you are, even though you're miserable and suffering and I could remove the thorn from your paw you know, very easily, but, you know, the views about the way things are and the way we practice. And we think, well, if we just accept things, it's not about accepting things or resigning things. If you walk out the door and you see someone beating a child, you're not going to go seeing, seeing, <laughs> colors, anger. You're going to do something. You know, it's not that there's going to be passivity. You will react to the environment. You will engage in the environment. The opposite of attachment is not detachment, which is two separate things. And of course, if there are no things, it's, it's engagement, you know, appropriate engagement, not, not clinging or, or anger, but appropriate engagement, engagement with, an, with, with the open heart of compassion. So seeing things as they, as they are, right view goes with, um, with the open heart. The two are 
are, they go together. It's hard to cultivate one without the other. And really, it's, it's harder to, to uh, it's harder to bullshit the heart. Now there's there's um, there are a lot of uh, academics who spend a lot of time studying these things and they they worry about the view of no views. The Buddha says, "Don't attach to any view." Well, is that a view that you're supposed to attach to? <laughs> and it's it's I, I guess it's a stumbling block. But for me, I've, I've come to regard the Buddha and his teachings recently more as, um, well, I, I, I hate to use the metaphor, but really I think of him, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're working with a realtor and the realtor takes you through a house, the realtor will say, you know, and here's the granite countertops and there's the solar panels and there's the fountain in the back and look at the lawn that's got sprinklers. You're expected to do the looking. So I, th- I sort of think of the Buddha that way, you know, as, as a docent. <laughs> yeah. Give this a try. Check it out. It's not, you know, don't have a view. It's check out how these views that we have, if we can see them clearly, the understandings we have, if we can see how they cause us suffering, check it out. You know, Ehipasako is the poly, you know, it's see for yourself. Don't take my word for it, he said. It's about your relationship to your dissatisfactions, to your suffering. And how do we, how do you free yourself? So take a look at the way in which We understand what's going on, the kinds of stories that we tell ourselves about the way things are. And 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 it's you know, viewing is a verb as well, right viewing. Not that there's you know, a Nietzsche dukkha, not a got it not the thought, it's the activity, it's the process. Mm. Keeping track of the difference, if I hold this up, you can say, I see a pen. But actually what you're seeing is shape and color. Your mind's thinking pen. You want to keep separate those, we, we knit them all together and create a view. We create a thing, this unified thing. We don't separate it out. The Buddha did. He said, the, in the, in the, in, actually, the, the shortest Dharma talk he ever gave, I think. You know, um, it's a, a guy who, I can't remember his name. Hmm. Been a, a forest monk for a long time at the time of the Buddha, and he heard the Buddha was in town. So he goes off to, to see him, and he comes across him while the Buddha's on alms rounds and says, oh, my gosh, I've heard about you. Please tell me. Relieve my suffering. Tell me the truth. Don't give me the teachings. 
And the Buddha said, well, I'm on alms rounds right now. Can you come back after, after lunch? And the guy said, look, I've been around long enough to know there may be no after lunch. Um, so the Buddha said, okay, okay. He said, in the seeing, only the seeing. In the hearing, only the hearing. In the touching, the tasting, the smelling. And in the thinking, only the thinking. See it like that, that thing that I read about. <clears throat> if one regards thinking simply as, a, as an event in and of itself, true and false don't apply. Just see the view as a view. And it's not that you don't want to use these ideas. They are very useful. <clears throat> they're, they're, but if you can't put the tool down, you know, then you're like Edward Scissorhands. You know. Was it Edward Scissorhands? Yeah, yeah, you couldn't touch any because he, he had long fingernails. Or something. Um, and if, if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, you know this one, everything starts looking like a nail. You know, if the tools you've got are nouns, things start looking like things. You know. And so it's not that they're not useful, but, but if we can't put them down, and if we think that the territory looks like the map, we'll wind up suffering because we'll be acting out of delusion. We'll think that Francesca Schiavone is going to be happy for the rest of her life. But, you know, has that ever happened? No. Because she'll lose again, unless she never plays again. There's so many different beliefs, ideas that we can cling to, that we can believe in, stories that aren't worth telling, that we won't stop telling. And we get upset with the story. It's in the mind, it arises in the mind, we react to it. This is what Papancha, the proliferation that goes on in our head. And if we don't see it just as the thinking, we will we get reactive to the thought, we get reactive to the reaction, we get judgmental about the I shouldn't be doing this, I should be you know. So right view seeing things as they are. The impermanence, the radical impermanence of everything. The interpenetrating nature of all this process. It's not that there's one thing. We're, you know, that implies there's no difference, ultimately. But if I stick myself with a pin, you don't hurt. I hurt. Or there's hurt over here. I can create a self. I'm cold or cold. Yeah, please. The, the thing that you said that just really struck me was the opposite of attachment is engagement. That's being active to the process Yes. instead of being passive to the causes and the conditions. That's right. 
That's right. We're not separate. There's no separation here. Please. Um, it reminds me <clears throat> of a sweet moment with my older grandson who was maybe um, under a year and a half when he was just starting to label things. With mm -hmm. It's about language. Mm -hmm. and, and it was in Petaluma and we were up near some um, calves and the mother uh, cows were trying to get these calves away from us, you know. And Oliver and the calf looked at each other. And I was so tempted to say, cow, moo, teach him about all this language, and I shut up, and <laughs> which I was grateful for because I realized that this was this moment that kind of they were having. And to not just add all the language, it took it away, and it was very mm -hmm. remarkable. Yeah. Much, much more touching than an explanation or a, anything could have been. And to tell the story about the mother, and yeah. blah, 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 you know, which is what I always do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, know. I resisted for that moment. <laughs> yeah. And I had this moment with him. Yeah. Yeah. Just direct perception. Please. I've been thinking that that um, reminds me. I thought during the precepts about the uh, don't. Um, which it's the um, don't. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't take that which is not given. Don't give that which isn't. To be taken, you know, to kind of reverse it is like to be quiet at that point was to mm -hmm. not, mm -hmm. or like when you're talking to somebody and they just want to talk and be heard, don't give advice. Um, the idea is to attenuate suffering, to not make things worse, you know, and to find a way to not make things worse. That's really our practice. And the meditation practice is to train our ability to discern when we're doing that. And to learn to see things as they are. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Both. We only want the joy part. So how do we get rid of the sorrows? Well, that effort is not helpful. <laughs> Any other thoughts or comments? Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>